week before last, I was with a few other adults and several youth from Emmanuel and from the Episcopal Church of the Epiphany on our annual mission trip. And we worked in Colleen, Texas, finishing construction on a wooden fence for a home into which a young family was going to be moving. So we basically gave the kids a safe place to play in their backyard. And each evening on this trip, we spent time in worship, and we discussed ways in which we could follow Jesus more closely as his disciples. Basically, we were talking about ways in which we could have God's word more fully written in our hearts. So for our final night there, uh, we decided to have Eucharist. That is, the Emmanuelites and Epiphanians uh, decided to have a Eucharist. And um, there were other churches in this group with us, and so we invited the, um, there was only actually only one other there at the time, um, so we invited um, this uh, youth group from the Baptist church to come and celebrate the Eucharist with us. Um, now they decided that they were going to worship with us but not receive communion because there were two of their kids who were not baptized, and they didn't want to single them out as being the only ones who weren't able to come up and have communion. So they, so none of them uh, received communion, which I thought was great that they, that they wanted to do that and not just single those two kids out. But we, all, we were all there together Friday night in our little impromptu worship space, and the Baptists were on one side and the Episcopalians were on the other with a little bit of commingling in there, but uh, largely kind of separated. But I figured that I would give a little bit of instruction to the, um, to the Baptist kids and the adults there about how we crazy Episcopalians worship. And so gave them all books of common prayer and, and talked about that and this call-response thing that we do at the beginning of our, of our worship uh, because these were all pretty foreign to the folks from the Baptist Church. And so I began with a few words about what to expect in the worship and a little about how to navigate the Book of Common Prayer. And then after the peace at the Holy Halftime, I talked about why we, you got that. I talked about why we worship the way we do. And I talked about this idea of having us all basically worshiping the same way and the same prayers week after week. And that this establishes not only the, the fact that we're all worshiping together, but praying these same prayers over and over establishes a rhythm for our lives. And while the prayers can become rote, and I pointed this out, the prayers can indeed become rote. And sometimes we end up repeating these, these words just because we're repeating the words. But praying these prayers week after week, they, these prayers end up getting into our blood. And the prayers become a way of life and a rhythm of life over time written in our hearts. And so our prayers can become this tangible way to help sustain our faith, which sounds to me pretty darn good. Um, and as I've always already pointed out, our prayers can also become um, something that is by rote. Um, something that we're supposed to do because there's obviously no other proper way to pray than out of the Book of Common Prayer. And all those other non-Episcopalians are obviously very silly uh, for their other ways of praying. Being facetious, thank you. Um, our prayers can become something that's followed just for the prayer's sake, rather than something we follow and choose to follow for our sake. It happens. And this is what seems to have been going on to a decent extent with the law in Israel in the first century. Finally getting to scripture. In Paul's, uh, Paul's day, he was writing to the Roman church. 
about what he saw. Well, he was writing to a church that was sort of split. It was not sort of between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and. Um, he was writing about this overemphasis that there had been on the religious practice without enough, maybe, faith behind that practice. And so, um, what Paul, the point Paul was making was, y'all are both fully Christians. Both you Jewish Christians and you Gentile Christians are full and true Christians. He tells the Gentile Christians not to boast that they have no room to boast because they've been grafted into the house of Israel and that their salvation has come through Israel. He tells the Jewish Christians not to boast because they have the law. Because, as he was saying, the law, having the law, is not what's important. Having faith in God is what was important, and they share that faith with the Gentiles. And that's what's truly important. For there is no distinction, Paul writes, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and is generous to all who call on him. Now, leading up to the passage we heard today, Paul writes in Romans 9, 30-32, What are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in filling that, fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. That sounds a bit to me like praying our prayers by rote, rather than letting those prayers mold and shape our lives. I'm a righteous person because I pray these prayers every day. If they don't shape our lives, who cares? Paul felt that the Israelites of his day were largely following God's law by rote, without that law really being written into their hearts. The following of religious practices seems to have superseded the faith in God and the life of love which those practices were meant to cultivate. And so in this context, Paul tells the Romans that the word of faith he has proclaimed is not far off, but on their lips and in their hearts. What Paul wrote is a rewording of Moses' address to Israel. Paul was saying you don't need to make these Herculean feats. What did he say? It's not up in heaven that you need to go bring Christ down. It's not in the abyss that you need to bring Christ up. The word is there in your hearts. In Deuteronomy 30, 11-14, Moses wrote, uh, said to the Israelites, Surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not up in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us, that we may hear and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us, so that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. So Israel was given a way of life to follow God, given a set of rules and a pattern to their life and this rhythm of life to come to know God more fully. And that way of life was meant from the very beginning to be in their hearts and on their lips. Now that didn't always happen. There were times when God's law and God's life wasn't so much in the hearts of at least the majority of Israel. Um, and so they received reminders, as we hear in the prophets. And one such reminder comes from Jeremiah 31, 33-34. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So we have this new covenant that God was going to establish such that the word would be on their hearts and in their, on their lips. Just like the covenant God made with Israel in Moses' day, that that covenant would be in their hearts and on their lips. God has continued to remind his people over the centuries and to remind all of his people, saying, guys, I'm right here. I'm in your hearts. My word, my way of life, and my presence is within you. So go live it. Which made me think then that you could say God is a God of wishful thinking. Um, or maybe a perennial optimist. Over and over God puts his words into people's hearts and we tend to follow and live out that word, except of course when we don't. And then God keeps on over and over putting that word back into people's hearts. God keeps on not giving up on us. God keeps on with his, you might say wishful thinking about us, or his perennial optimism toward us, Live out the word, the life that God has put in your hearts, and let other people know about it. These are the things that God desires for us. God keeps on with these two basic thoughts for our lives. Live out this word that I've put in your heart and share it with others. And here we get to the end of the reading from Romans today, and on that, that, that non-Episcopal word evangelism. Sorry, I'll be brief. Um, Paul reminds us at the end of this reading to share the word of God, which is in our hearts. He says, but how are they to call on one whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? We uh, had a... on this mission trip again, part of this, it was through a different group, a different organization called Team Effort, and part of what they were hoping to happen on all of these trips is that there would be some time when we might proclaim the Word of God to whomever we happen to see, that they would see us working and that we could then proclaim the Word of God. And I don't think that would have been a bad thing. I think as true evangelism, it might have been not overly effective because evangelism, true evangelism, works best in the context of relationship. What we're really doing is talking to people we know and getting to know people and getting, you know, getting to know other people, and then we can talk to them and share our lives. If God's word is in our heart and on our lips, then we're not going out and talking about something foreign to us. We're simply sharing our lives with people. And we're not doing door-to-door evangelism. That's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about street corner evangelism. Paul lived with the people to whom he brought the gospel. Jesus had dinner with folks and brought them the gospel. Sharing our faith and our hope with people whom we know is a part of having, getting these people to know us and who we really are. And if they end up not wanting to know more, okay. And if they do end up wanting to know more and end up sharing our faith, great. Our goal is not necessarily to convert. They tried forcing that over the centuries. We're not trying to convert. We're trying to share our faith and share who we are and to remember and live the faith of God that is within our hearts. We're seeking to keep God's life and word alive in our hearts. 
the life and word of a God not who says, I am angry, but a God who says, I love you. And a God who doesn't give up on us and keeps putting that word in our hearts. You could even say a God of wishful thinking. Probably heresy. But a God just might be of wishful thinking and perennial optimism toward us. Amen.